What's going on? Welcome back to Modern Day Marketer. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. I love these conversations. What's even more fun is when we have a repeat guest excited to be bringing you Margaret Kelsey. Margaret was on the pod a long time ago, early days of the pod, and she is off doing her own thing. I've been seeing her on LinkedIn doing her own podcast thing. And I said, you know what? There's some takes out here I want to dig into. Let's do it. So we're going to be talking about the power of hijacking frequency and recency bias. We're going to get into some methods and some tactics and some mentalities. She knows her stuff. You're going to want to listen to the episode from start to finish. If you like what I'm doing over here, follow, subscribe, all the buttons. Did you check out Content Distribution Live yesterday? Don't miss it. We'll be doing more. You're not going to want to miss it anymore, but let's focus in on this conversation. That's why we're all here. Let's kick it over to the conversation. Thanks for stopping by. All right. What's up, everyone? This is fun because there hasn't been a lot of these. There's been a few, but we've got a two-time guest here on Modern Day Marketer. The show was probably called by its previous name the last time our guest came on, but you know what? It seemed like I couldn't stop seeing her on my LinkedIn feed, she talks about a lot of things that we are super passionate about. So I figured now might be a good time, but I am joined by Margaret Kelsey. She is doing some really incredible things right now. If you're paying attention on LinkedIn, Twitter, any of the channels, you've probably seen her and she's got a new pod she's running called Don't Say Content, which you should all check out. But Margaret, welcome back. How are you? Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I have my windows open today. Heat's still pumping, but I have a window cracked. So it feels feels like we're getting into the spring. I was, I hope so. I feel like the last three or four days in Indy have been like the coldest days in the last six months. And it feels like, you know, it's springtime. It lasts for like two seconds. And then all of a sudden it's the heat wave here in the Midwest uh, comes on, but I should be optimistic. We'll just see how it goes. It's the last, I think it's the last grasp of winter that you're going through. It's going to be, it's going to be a lovely spring. I love the optimism. Maybe we start here and talk a little bit about like things have changed for you since the last time we spoke. And I should also preview with everyone before I forget the topic we're going to be talking about is the power of hijacking frequency and recency bias, which is going to be a ton of fun, but maybe share a little bit of context on what you've been up to since we spoke last. Yeah. So last time we spoke, I was at OpenView leading their marketing team. And about October, I left and started my own advising and consultancy business. And so I advise B2B, mostly product-led growth startups or startups that are kind of transitioning to product-led growth on how to build an appropriate marketing engine that supports their future proof vision of the business. Things so far just in switching gears that you have learned about what marketers are either thinking about, where there are gaps, any big takeaways just in the early run of this so far? Yeah, I think my biggest takeaways have been that we as marketers have kind of over the last couple of years locked in certain playbooks and have forgotten uh, that everything is changing all of the time. The way that folks buy is changing, the way the channels in which they're 
they're active in, the channels that they live in, the communities that they live in, their their work lives. Everything has changed radically, especially over the last three years. At the same exact time that marketers have kind of codified and and put to print their playbooks, and I think it's it's a real miss right now to not stay in a culture of experimentation and figure out what's working and throw out things that are not working and and kind of throwing out your darlings, throwing out, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but definitely kill your darlings in the process. And that's something that I think is is kind of core to all of my engagements is almost permission for both the founder and the head of marketing to think about marketing in a new creative way and not pretend like we've all figured it out just yet because everything's changing all the time and there's more to figure out. So I want to talk a little bit about the playbooks of it all, because this might help us frame up the the boring nature of the marketing that we all see. And it took me a little while to finally realize that the playbook that successful company in another industry was running isn't likely the one that is going to work for us. But as marketers, we're just such in a copycat world where we see something work for somebody else. Even if this the audience is completely different, we try to rip it off. And this just snowballs over and over again. So I don't like our, I know you like to share fiery takes on different topics. Are we done with playbooks? Is it over? Should we, should we, should we put them to bed? Like what's, what's your perspective there? Listen, I think that they're a great jumping off point. I think if you're going from zero to one, and that's oftentimes I think why particularly founders are looking to marketing playbooks is because if they don't, if they're not a a go-to-market background, Mm. they don't have a go-to-market background, it's a useful thing to go to a playbook of something that's been done before. I'm also a big proponent of, you know, steal like an artist. Like I, I think that it's important to constantly be inspired and to grab things and remix them and whatever. And so I think if you're using a playbook as a source of inspiration or a source of learning, a source of getting something off the ground from zero to one, that's interesting to me. But I think that if you don't keep a critical eye on what pieces to experiment with, what pieces to to throw out and and remix something new in there, you're going to get a non-significant result from that playbook. And so it's a great thing to use as long as you know what you're using it for. If you're using it as a Bible, it's not going to be the right use. If you're using it as a source of inspiration, I'm saying, okay, like, go ahead and, you know, try it, but rip it all apart as you try it. I love the de- delineation you call out between like a founder, uh, CEO who might not have a marketer or marketing leader in place to go look at the playbook for guidance and instruction. But then it maybe is this point if you are the solo marketer or managing a, of a marketing team instead of relying on the playbook that the CEO was using maybe it's time to evaluate that and then take some big swings and try new things and then start to experiment because you as the marketer can spend 100% of your time refining and seeing what works and what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's been honestly kind of my head fake through through all of this advising work is if I can set up the relationship between a founder and a head of marketing to be a really successful one, to help them have this shared language of what things they're experimenting with and also the the 
comfort levels of experimentation and both of them breaking down their own conversations to let each other know that they haven't figured this out yet and that that's okay. And like having a third party come in and say, it's okay that you don't know what's what you're doing yet, especially at this stage and especially as everything's changing all of the time. That's been a really interesting, a really interesting outcome is making sure it's almost like a like that be the thing that you wish you had. I feel like mm. I wish I've had this in in previous organizations of like, you know, a, a shared language between a non-marketer leader and the head of marketing. So before we get off the boring topic and get into like the substance, we talked about playbooks. What other things would you like to call out that you think are contributing to the boring nature of B2B marketing in general? I think this is going to be a spicy take. I think <laughs> that the cash flushness that happened, I mean, where I wouldn't say we're in it right now, but I would say over the last couple of years, especially in venture backed startups, I think that the availability to cat of to to have access to cash made marketers lazy because they weren't, I believe that creativity comes through constraints. I believe capital constraints are a very fantastic source of creativity. And I think that's kind of a piece of of what happened is there was enough money to to mm. to spin around to do things that weren't super capital efficient marketing programs that did not have to convert super highly. You could just kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. You could, you know, do a bunch of paid ads and go to a bunch of you know events and burn through your marketing budget because there was budget to burn. And I think that that's a, a big contributor. I think that that cycle is quickly, rapidly shifting underneath marketers' feet. And I think that it's perfect time to kind of go back to our creative roots and really take a, a sober look at the programs that we're running and kill the things that are not working. So we can ax, uh, so we can free up both capital, but also internal resources to do the things that might actually have much more efficient and, and interesting returns. So I hate to talk in cliches, but sometimes cliches are the driving point for I love cliches. Good, 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 good topics. So the what my favorite cliche right now in B two B marketing is the 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 do more with less narrative. We oh, I know. There's I've heard the, it. We, <laughs> I've heard it before. Have you? I actually did a search on LinkedIn, do more with less, just to see what happened. And like there were like twenty events that had do more with less in the title that LinkedIn was hosting alone. So yeah. Anyways, based on what you said, that would tell me, okay, we don't have the budget to go do the things that aren't working or maybe bring in an opportunity or two when they should be bringing in 10. So we've got to do more with less. We've got to be more creative with how we spend our budget and use our resources. What sort of things may be based on your conversations or how you're guiding other marketers of like areas of focus, like since we don't have budget to do everything we've always done, like where are marketers kind of, or would you direct marketers to be shifting their focus and attention? Yeah, I think, and not to get too specific and prescriptive because that's exactly the kind of thing I rail against. But I think an example of this is if you traditionally have employed a PR agency for let's say 15, 20 grand a month in PR fees to make sure that you're getting in front of influencers, media, a different way to do that is to tap the the folks on your team that are maybe on maybe managing social or managing your community and understanding and identifying who your influencers are in your community 
and making sure you're building relationships with them instead of necessarily, you know, paying PR to go after the big fish of big media. There's a lot of folks, especially in the B2B world, who are starting their own sub stacks and building massive audiences really quickly that have access to your community of the folks that you want to be reaching. And so building relationships with them, making sure that you understand those as audi- those people as audiences, influencers as, as audiences, what they need, what how you can be useful to them, whether that's passing them, you know, proprietary data that your company has that they can feature in their newsletters, things like that. That to me feels scrappier than kind of the traditional thing, which is, you know, we're gonna go and and have a an interesting PR strategy and try to get into Wall Street Journal. I love it. I think there's but I love this... UPR agencies. I'm sorry that I'm not. <laughs> I know anyone in PR right now is just like shaking their head. And they're just like, I know, it. I know. I love you guys so much. <laughs> they have a hard enough job getting clients and now you've got a marketing podcast shitting on their work. But I know, I know. <laughs> I actually, and I was, I, I did a very short stint at a PR agency. And so I feel every time I bring up a PR, a PR agency as a thing, I have this like pang of remembering my 10 months where I tried to make it work and I, I can't, I couldn't make it work. <laughs> One thing that I think we struggle to make work sometimes is when we have these outside the box wacky ideas that we believe we need to implement because we know we need to capture attention. Some Sometimes the struggle we have, or I hear this from other marketers is like, I believe in this, but I am struggling to sell it internally to my stakeholders who are focused in on like lead in the door sales calling them opportunity created, especially maybe like in this environment where the importance of conversion is arising, how do we sell some of these ideas or what is the process you'd recommend to sell some of these wacky outside of the box ideas to our team? I love that you're calling out the fact that conversion, importance of conversion is rising. Like where were we that it wasn't (laughs) important to convert? Like what in the world were we doing that? Like, oh, now all of a sudden it's really important that we actually convert (laughs) users like, oh my God, or customers or whatever it is. Sorry, rant, side note rant. I think in terms of getting creative buy-in, listen, it doesn't have to be that creativity lives top of funnel and down into conversion, bottom of funnel land, we don't get to be creative, right? We can really think about human behavior across the entire funnel journey, flywheel, whatever you want to call it. And I think that when I'm talking about creativity, I'm talking about trying new things that might work better than the old tired thing that you're Mm -hmm. already doing. So if you're trying to convert somebody to get them on a phone call, you know, there's creative ways to do that outside of, outside of, I don't know, cold DMing them on LinkedIn. Right. And I think that's what my, encouragement would be is Mm. you can bring this idea into all aspects. I mean, great salespeople are very creative, right? Great marketers, brand marketers are creative. Great demand gen marketers are creative. And so this idea that you get to make it up because everything that exists has been made up means that you can make it up across all of those things. And I think once folks start seeing that new ways of doing things works, they're more open to trying new ways of doing things across the entire journey. I think the biggest mistake that we make is that we try the new creative stuff in brand land and not in demand land. And then brand gets a reputation for being wasteful because Mm. trying anything new means that there are going to be times where you fail and that 
you wasted money, effort, whatever it was. And I think the worst thing that we do is we only do that in brand land. And then it's like, oh, brands over there dicking around, spending all that money, not doing anything that works. And I think I think that's that can be a downfall for marketers. I love your sentiment about sales and creativity. And I found any anyone listening to this is a marketer, has their guard up and we're like, we're not going to be put through the same thing we're trying to put other people through. And I, I reflect on that. Um, and to me, it's always those moments when I'm like in someone's sales process and I'm like two levels deep and I'm like, shit, I'm in someone's sales process. And then it's admiration for them getting me there. And it's like, okay, now I'm really interested in trying to, it's because I like the person who's doing it, or I actually believe in how they're positioning their product. And I think to me, that's always the mark of like, okay, I don't care what they're selling, who they are. They got me to this point where I'm in their process. So let's listen to what they have to say. Yeah. That's funny that you're like, I got to get tricked in sometimes. And then I'm (laughs) totally uh, more inspired. Yeah. I think, I think that to that point, I I've heard that adage. And again, the cliche of like, you buy from people that you like, I think the, the answer, and I've talked to the folks at Hoffman, which is like a sales training company. They're fantastic. And sharing a bunch of stuff on LinkedIn too. Now, if you're, if you're in the sales world or adjacent and they were talking about like, it's actually like just people don't buy from people that they don't like. So it's Mm. more on like the, you have to at least not be terrible for people to buy from you. But I do think that relationships are becoming even more important. And actually we can bring this all the way up into marketing. I think that with the rise of all of these AI writing tools and the ability to pump out content and and written words and and things at a at a really high clip, my prediction is that the things that will remain proprietary or special will be insights attached to lived human beings, personal brands, right? People saying, I agree to this insight, whether or not they use AI to write it, spin it up, clean it up. And also proprietary data and insights, things that are behind paywalls or behind products that models can't get trained on. So anything that your company has that is proprietary in terms of a data or insight on user behavior will be the things that are actually useful for for content in the future. It's not a marketing podcast these days without bringing up AI. So I appreciate I you. <laughs> but it leads into like, check. The hot- <laughs> check. we check that box, everyone. Uh, did you write it down? I won't do a, a LinkedIn carousel on the different ways that you can prompt it Thanks. to do different things for you. I think I've seen that, that has, there are useful things out there beyond what I could, what I could deliver. The entire community thanks you. So the this gets into kind of the hijacking frequency and recency bias of it all. I think like, right, like AI, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you turn. So it's like, I reached the point where it's like, I should like, especially working at a content company, it's like, I should probably have an opinion on this at some level. But maybe when we talk about hijacking frequency and recency bias, let's like define what that means first from your end before we get into maybe like some of the approaches that might work. So like, how how should we be thinking about that? Yeah. And so I'll even spin it up into like, this is what I'm talking to founders to like remove the marketing jargon from their brains that maybe that they've, you know, got entrenched in little pockets there of like ABM, Omnichannel, PLG, uh, like inbound marketing. Like I like want to clear all that clutter out of their brain and bring it back to the basics. Because while I think everything is changing all the time for marketing, the fundamental is still the same. And the fundamental is that marketing should be responsible for two things. 
saturation of channels. And so that means you're hijacking frequency and recency bias to stay top of mind with your target audience. We're not even converting it. We're just literally part of marketing is like broadcasting, staying out there, staying in your, your target audience's brains. The second thing is, can you identify signals of readiness and convert that person to do whatever you want them to do as quickly and efficiently as possible? cheaply as possible. And so that could be to get them to talk to sales, to get them into your product, to get them to try something, to get them to go somewhere, whatever it is. And that is essentially marketing's two functions. Can you saturate to the point of hijacking frequency and recency bias? And then can you identify and convert? That just helps set people's brains up to be like, oh, now I understand. And we can attach all of these different words that marketers have come up with into these different places, right? Like maybe you could mm. call saturation brand and maybe you can call conversion demand if you want to. I don't know. We can all decide on different words to use for anything. But I think the most important part is this, this brand saturation or saturation as a function of marketing before you even move to conversion helps also set up this idea that you will need to spend money and time to just stay top of mind because it's very hard to really understand unless you're further along and you really understand those signals of readiness that somebody's ready to convert and you're a mature organization with a mature product and you really understand your user's pain point and exactly what signals they're going to do, what they're going to Google, what they're going to how where they're going to show up when they're ready to solve this problem. Without that, you need to just be top of mind so that whenever they have the pain point, then they'll think of you. And so that's frequency and recency bias. It's harder for recency because you never know like when that signal is going to happen or when that pain point is going to happen. And so it's really about the frequency in which you're staying top of mind with your target audience. Is there specific examples, people, brands, just anyone you've observed who understands this or you would give an A plus or a gold star to because you're like, all right, they get this approach to capture attention and, you know, win new customers. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'll pivot a little bit and not shout out people that are doing it uh, well, because I also think there are so many people that, I don't know, in the age of creators and B2B celebrities, if we could say that, B2B influencers. I don't know what we should be calling these people nowadays. I feel like it's so touch and go on whether or not they're annoying to some people, but at least I have a question on that real quick before you get into it. Just the question I have is, do, do you believe the individuals that we would consider B2B celebrities are seeking to be famous in this community? Or is it genuinely like they genuinely like are looking to help because they believe if they help and do the things that we're accustomed to doing as marketers and people find value, then though at the end of the road, like they're going to end up getting a new customer for their brand or for their agency or for whatever it is. Like, what is your read on that situation? It depends on the person. I think that there's a mixture of both out there. Um, And actually it was really funny. I was sitting, I had uh, lunch with Jay Akunzo and my podcast co-host Devin. And we were talking about this and he afterwards had a spicy take on Twitter based on our conversation, which is that's his biggest gripe with with some of the folks that are branding themselves as B2B marketer influencers is that his read on it, and I would agree with him, is some of them don't 
genuinely care about the audience that they're serving. Mm. They're trying to use it as lead gen. And his biggest advice for Devin and I, as we were starting our podcast, was very much build it for yourselves, right? It's the first time that I think Devin and I have not thought about a, a target audience for our businesses. Our businesses are relationship businesses because we're advising and coaching and only doing a few engagements at a time. We're not a volume-based business. And so our podcast is not lead gen for our business. It's just truly, hopefully helpful because every time I have a conversation with her, I walk away and feel that it was useful and, and important in my life. And so part of it is just like, can we create something that is useful and important to us that hopefully is useful and important to other people? Now, that's hard to do in a B2B context of if you are a marketer at a B2B software company where you need to think about what is useful for your target audience, right? And it's probably the thing that you would want to create out of the shiningness of your soul is not the thing that might be useful for your target audience. And so it there's nuance around when you create something and mm. you're very audience focused versus when it's for yourself or for like a, a younger version of you. And that's like Devin and I's podcast definitely comes from that place of like, if we had listened to now who we are in our career when we were five years ago or 10 years ago, how different would we have had it, right? Or if we could understand how to talk and and get executives aligned to their vision of marketing or our vision of marketing, how much better would that be for the younger marketer on that team of that founder who maybe could do it? So anyways, a little bit of a, a side diatribe. I think that the more we strive to be truly helpful, the better our businesses do also, right? This is why I've always loved content marketing is I think it's the most altruistic type of marketing when done well which is truly just how do I solve my audience's problems, my users' problems before they become customers? How do I give away so much value that then I, when they have the pain point that my product solves, knows that I am thinking about this in the way that makes them feel understood and cared for and whatnot. So to me, I feel like that's where it came from. And it kind of has turned into, I don't know, influencer dumb. Influencer dumb? <laughs> influencer dumb. I love it. There's the clip. I want to talk about- I'm not calling the... influencers dumb. I was like, <laughs> kingdom, influencer dumb. <laughs> appreciate the clarification. You're going to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. So what I want to maybe just like example with don't say content and mapping it to frequency and recency and topics. Like you mentioned, you just said like, we're, we're, Devin and I are doing this like it's the first time we're like we're doing it for ourselves. We talked with Jay. This is what we're doing. Is there like when you're thinking about like the topic selection for the show, is there any element of thinking about like frequency, recency, like hijacking in it? Or is it just stuff that you guys workshop before kind of you do an episode? Like what's your process? Yeah, I think when we talk about when we think about topics, we're not thinking about frequency and recency as much because we're not going after a specific target audience where we have a marketing message that we want to share that we want to like drive home, except for the fact that, you know, overall, I think everyone you can get to the understanding that Devin and I think that marketing is boring right now that that we talked about at the beginning of this this episode. When we're thinking, when I'm thinking of saturating channels, like I'm thinking about saturating LinkedIn to stay top of mind. And so part of that is is the saturation or the recency and frequency bias is are we showing up consistently? I think that's why content marketing, I think serialized content programs, especially in content marketing are really important because you're hitting that frequency point 
right? You have something that's launching every day, every week, every maybe biweekly. I wouldn't probably go beyond that at a consistent enough clip that people understand when it's coming out and what channels they're going to see it in. And so that's, I think it's, it's more about like once you get into the distribution channels where, where frequency and recency bias really, I think, start to play. Appreciate the clarification there. And I want to close it out with a topic that I know I've seen you talk about, but it's, and I think maps up to everything we're chatting about here, but it's just like the, this brand halo element. And I think you hear brand halo and you think about it in theory and it sounds awesome. And we should all, you know, strive to build a brand halo around everything we do, but like tactically it's like really challenging. And I think it's just, you know, it's, it's hard work. Right. So I'm curious, like maybe like start with like, what's a brand halo to you? And then like, what are things we should be thinking about as marketers in order to, to build that? Yeah. And I I think brand falls into this trap and I've seen it now at several organizations, brand falls into a trap where they become just an internal agency for consistency of voice, tone, colors, font, you know, and they're really just an internal agency that that keeps consistency and assets. And I think that effective and strategic brand organizations actually build what I've been workshopping as a culture brand content community, I don't know, flywheel or I like the halo actually, because it does kind of create this circle. So maybe we'll, we'll call it the halo. And I think they, that brand team should feel ownership over that. And what I mean by that is that internal culture should be focused on under like a maniacal understanding of your end user, your target audience. So everyone on your marketing team, your brand team, your content team, whatever you call it, should be obsessed with the the audience that your product serves and what they're thinking about, caring about, talking about, get in those, you know, when I was at Envision, my Twitter was design Twitter. And when I was at AppQs, my Twitter was product Twitter. And now when I was at OpenView, it was like founder Twitter. And I think the more you get entrenched in, in those communities, even social media communities or, or understand and follow influencers, the more that you'll start to talk about it internally and talk about you know, who's saying what and what the spicy takes were and whatnot. I think also your cultural values need to be one-to-one with your brand values. You shouldn't have separate culture and brand values. The way that you show up internally and the things and the reasons, the decision-making framework to hire somebody that they align to your cultural values should also be publicly your values. And those should be values that are really intrinsically meaningful to your target audience. And so that's how culture and brand starts to intersect. And then I start, I think with with that foundation, you can start creating content with and for the community. And then you're creating content that's usually at the cusp of what's happening in the industry. And you can bring those insights back into your organization and even into your product organization. I tell the story about the fact that we at Envision started to write about design systems before we I even think had a design system product on the roadmap. But it was something that the the designers in these B2B, especially enterprise B2B companies were starting to talk about they need design systems to, you know, help scale design as as these companies scaled. And so we started talking about it before we even had a product to serve it. And then it was nice because once we launched that product, we could go back into that content and backlink it into, you know, super bottom of the funnel design system product content. So that to me is I think the foundation of what I would say is a brand halo. It's a little bit more tactical how that actually shows up with your target audience and the things that they care about and the channels in which they live in, the communities that already exist versus the communities that you can create. All of that is where you experiment. But I think that's how I've been talking about how to build a, a brand team that is something other than just an internal agency. 
I love conversations that get my brain racing and have me thinking about new ways to approach what I do. Margaret, appreciate the time. Round two. I think it was a success. I feel like even on the prep call, I'm like, oh, we got stuff to talk about. <laughs> we'll be here yeah. for days. <laughs> yeah. So episode three between uh, Margaret and Modern Day Marketer coming at some point. Uh, yeah, appreciate exactly. the time. We'll talk to you soon. Chat soon. Always have fun chopping it up with Margaret. I learned a ton. Hopefully you did too. Make sure you follow her across all of those social channels and check out her pod. We'll link it out in the show notes. As a reminder, we will be off next week, but don't worry. More Modern Day Marker will come back. We'll be better than ever. You take care.